In John's Gospel, seven times Jesus announces, I am, or I am he. And in doing that, Jesus is taking up the way God refers to himself in the Old Testament and saying, that's who I am. I'm not just a representative, not just a messenger of Almighty God, not just a prophet. No, Jesus says, I am Almighty God. And we could call those Jesus' simple I am statements. They underline Jesus' divine identity. He is the I am of the Old Testament. He is God. But there are seven other I am statements in John's gospel. And in those, Jesus doesn't stop with the words I am. Each time he adds something else. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. If the seven simple I am statements announce that Jesus is God, these I am statements explain who Jesus is for us. He is our light, he is our shepherd, and so on. And this morning we come to the seventh and final of these I am something statements. Jesus says, I am the true vine. You'll find it in John chapter 15. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1083. In the larger print Bibles, 1676. And in a moment, we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 17. But just to remind you of the context here, Jesus is sharing a last meal with his disciples. In chapter 14, he spoke about going away and then coming back for his disciples later. But he also assured them in chapter 14 that in the meantime, he and his father will not abandon his disciples. The Holy Spirit will come and be in Jesus' followers. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are so united that those who have the Holy Spirit, in fact, have the Father and the Son too. Through the Holy Spirit, their representative, the Father and Son also make their home with Jesus' followers here and now. And in the passage we're about to read, Jesus develops this idea of his followers having a deep, living connection with him. So let's read from chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is God's word. And the image Jesus uses here is the image of a vine which essentially has three parts. There's the vine itself, there's the branches that grow out of it, and there's the fruit produced by the branches. In verses 1 to 8 of this passage, Jesus focuses on the vine and the branches. The fruit is also mentioned a few times in verses 1 to 8. But in those verses, Jesus doesn't tell us what kind of fruit he has in mind. That comes in verses 9 to 17. So verses 1 to 8, the vine and the branches. Then verses 9 to 17, the fruit. First of all, using the image of the vine, Jesus says, Remain in me. Jesus is the source of a fruitful life. But why does Jesus start here by calling himself the true vine in verse 1? calling yourself the true vine implies there's a vine or vines that are not true. They're not the genuine article. So what other vine might Jesus have in mind? Well, we find the answer to that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's vine. There are plenty of passages we could look at but here's one from Psalm 80, which we read earlier. The Psalm says, To God, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The writer of the Psalm is speaking there about what God did when he brought the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt and led them into the land of Canaan. Why is that described as transplanting a vine? 
Well, because the intention was, as Israel put down roots in the land of Canaan, they would produce good fruit there, like a healthy vine. The Israelites were to live lives that brought honor to God, the one who had planted them in the land. But as we read the Old Testament, what we discover is what actually happened was Israel the vine produced rotten, bitter fruit. They dishonored God through their disobedience. They produced evil, not good. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says that Israel became a corrupt, wild vine. And Psalm 80 goes on to describe the consequences of that. Israel, the vine, was cut down, Psalm 80 says. Meaning, the Israelites were taken away into exile. They were removed from the land God had given them. And even though much later some of them straggled back from exile, here in John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus announces, the nation of Israel is no longer God's vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the vine that produces good fruit. And if you're going to produce good fruit, you need to be a branch that is united to me. True fruitfulness, Jesus is saying, does not come from belonging to the nation of Israel. True fruitfulness comes from belonging to him. And we can certainly widen this out because Jesus is the only source of a truly fruitful life. It's not just the nation of Israel that proved to be an unfruitful vine. If you and I seek a fruitful life through connection with anything or anyone other than Jesus, we will be disappointed. Jesus and only Jesus is the source of a fruitful life. So far, so good. But if Jesus says we need to be united to him if we are to have a fruitful life, why does he also talk about some branches connected to him being cut off? Look at that again in verse 1 and the start of verse 2. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And then look how Jesus develops that point a bit more down in verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. What is Jesus saying in those verses? Is he saying that he can't quite manage to produce fruit in some of his branches? Is he saying that some branches are too tricky for him to work with? So he has to give up on them and have his father cut them off. Or is Jesus saying that if one of his branches has a bad day or a bad few months... If one of his branches messes up, they're chopped off and tossed in the fire. Is this about either Jesus' inability to work with us 
Or is it about our inability to measure up? Well, the answer is no in both cases. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said, I shall lose none of all those the Father has given me. Jesus, the good shepherd, does not lose a single one of his genuine sheep. And Jesus, the true vine, does not lose a single one of his genuine branches. And so if we take into account what Jesus says in the whole of John's gospel, then we realize that here, Jesus is talking about branches that look for a while like they are truly connected to him, but in the end, they show they are not. Every branch that's truly united with Jesus, the vine, will produce fruit. Branches that remain fruitless are removed because time has shown they're not truly united with Jesus. For a while, they may have done a convincing job of looking like branches, drawing their life from Jesus the vine. But in time, the reality becomes obvious. They were withered branches with no true life in them. Think of Judas Iscariot. You've heard from Judas and about Judas in the last couple of chapters. Judas is supposed to be in our minds as we get to chapter 15. So just think about him for a minute. For several years, Judas gave every appearance of being united with Jesus. Judas looked like a genuine branch. For several years, Judas followed Jesus outwardly. He gave every indication he was also following Jesus inwardly. So much so that when in chapter 13, Jesus said to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And when Jesus then turned to Judas a few moments later and said, what you are about to do, do quickly. Even then, John tells us, the other disciples didn't suspect that Judas was the betrayer. That's incredible. Judas looked so much like a branch united to Jesus, the others never guessed he wasn't truly connected to Jesus. And so here in chapter 15, at the beginning of verse 2, Jesus is saying, the Father cuts off those branches that looked for a while like they were connected to Jesus, the true vine. But eventually their lack of fruitfulness gives the game away. They are cut off because their association with Jesus was only a superficial connection. A true connection would have produced fruit. The branches that are cut off are dead branches. In contrast to that, look what Jesus says about fruitful branches in verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Real branches have Jesus remaining in them, and they will remain in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, last week we heard about how Jesus remains in us. He is present in us by his Holy Spirit. So then how do we remain in Jesus? We might wonder if it's a passive thing. After all, branches on a vine don't look like they're doing much except just hanging there. So does remaining in Jesus mean being in church every week? So long as we keep on showing up and taking our seat, is that remaining in Jesus? Well, remaining in Jesus will certainly result in being in church. But remaining in Jesus is more than just church attendance. Here Jesus says, remaining in him means letting his word fill and direct our life. Where does he say that? Well, look back at verse 2, speaking about Jesus' Father. He cuts every, off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. There's a play on words here in verse 2. There's a footnote in the NIV, which tells us the word translated prune also means clean. Why would that interest us? Well, look at verse 3. Jesus says to these disciples, that's the 12 disciples minus Judas in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. For a moment, Jesus is leaving the image of the vine to one side to tell these disciples, you belong to me. My word has already taken hold of you. You are already clean. Not in the sense of being perfect, but in the sense of being joined to me. You've been rescued from this world and its rebellion against me. You've been given new life in me. You're already clean. Because my word has come to you with its purifying, life-giving power. And that helps us understand what Jesus was talking about in verse 2. When he said, God the Father prunes or cleans fruitful branches to make them more fruitful. The branches are already clean through their connection to Jesus. And the Father carries on the work of cleaning these branches. Verse 3 told us that work started with Jesus' word taking hold in our lives. And that work continues as the branches let his word fill and direct their lives. Notice that down in verse 7. Jesus connects remaining in him with his words remaining in them. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. So if we try and put together what we've heard so far, we've heard that Jesus is the true vine. He's the only source of a fruitful life. We are joined to him as living branches when his word takes root in us so that we receive and respond to his word. And then we produce fruit as we remain in him by letting his word fill and direct our life. 
Here's how Sinclair Ferguson helps us to understand this. He says, the way to remain in him is by letting his word remain in us. So, if you want to remain in Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Leave no room in your life locked. No cupboard door closed to it. Let it bring light into your mind. Let it warm your affections for Christ. Let it subdue your will to his. The word of Christ is the instrument of Christ used by the spirit of Christ to nurture union with Christ and to transform us into the image of Christ. Growth in holiness involves our doing what God's word tells us. But more fundamental than our doing God's word is what God's word is doing to us. That is what it means to remain in Jesus. And that is the context for what Jesus says about prayer in verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When Jesus said something very similar to this back in chapter 13, we noticed that in the context, Jesus was not giving an unconditional promise that he would do anything at all for us. He was talking about prayers that sought the Father's glory through the glorification of the Son. And here in this context too, Jesus is not giving an unconditional promise. Ask whatever you wish does not mean ask selfishly and with earth-bound priorities and it will be done for you. No, Jesus is talking about asking for whatever we wish while we are remaining in him and his words are remaining in us. When the word of Jesus is doing its work in us so that we desire to glorify the Father by bearing much fruit for Jesus the Son, then Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So far, we've heard that Jesus is the source of a fruitful life. We've heard that we are to remain in him, and we do that by letting his word fill and direct our life. So what is it that still needs to be explained to us here? Well, we need to know what kind of fruit Jesus has in mind. What does a fruitful life look like? And the answer to that question, well, we could pull in lots of different things from the New Testament at this point, because the New Testament describes a whole variety of fruit that comes from a living connection with Jesus. But here in this passage, Jesus focuses on just one fruit. And he does it by building on the key words of verses 1 to 8. The key words there were, remain in me. But now Jesus says, remain in my love. A fruitful and joyful life is a loving life. 
Several times in these chapters, the way Jesus and his Father relate to one another is set out as the template or the model for how we are to relate to Jesus. Jesus' relationship with his Father is the pattern for us to follow. And that's the case again here. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus enjoys the love of his Father, and then Jesus in turn loves you and me. What that means is, the Jesus who reaches out to us in love is already secure and satisfied in his Father's love. Jesus does not come to you and me with any need he's looking for us to satisfy. He does not come grasping after some kind of endorsement or validation from you and me. Jesus' love is not like that. He loves with the freedom and the security that comes from being loved perfectly by his Father. That is how Jesus loves us. So how are we to love him? Look how he continues in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. The pattern for how you and I are to love Jesus is the way Jesus loves his Father. And how does Jesus love his Father? He obeys him. Jesus' obedience doesn't earn his Father's love. No, obedience is the way Jesus returns the love he has received from his Father. Jesus doesn't just soak up his Father's love with no response. And similarly with us. Our obedience doesn't earn Jesus' love. Obedience is how we respond to the love he has poured out on us. Having no concern to obey Jesus, well, that would be a sign we're not truly united to him. We've had no real experience of his life-changing love. Our loving obedience is the fruit Jesus' love produces in our lives. And so, truly Christian love is not miserly love. It's not grim, record-keeping love. It's joyful love. In verse 11, right after speaking about obedience, Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. At some level, all of us are searching for joy. Nobody sets out to be joyless, do they? But one of the realities of human life is that lasting joy eludes us. It always seems to be one step or one move ahead of us. Always just out of our reach. And when we think we've finally tracked it down and embraced it, 
it turns out to be so fragile. Like a mist. We try to grasp hold of joy and pin it down, but it slides away from us like smoke. Yes, we do have moments of joy, but our ability to preserve those moments can make us even more bereft when they're gone. Isn't that true? Here, Jesus offers us joy. But he doesn't say, chase after joy. He doesn't say, make joy your ambition in life. No, Jesus says, remain in my love the way I remain in my Father's love through willing obedience. Live that way and joy will find you. That's Jesus' own experience. His joy is the byproduct of his loving obedience to his Father. Jesus doesn't pursue joy. He pursues loving obedience. And joy comes. That is the way to experience complete joy. Joy that doesn't dance away from us just as we think we've grasped hold of it. The fuller and more wholehearted our obedience to Jesus, the more complete our joy will be. But isn't it true that we're tempted to think we'll have better lives if we hold back on our obedience to Jesus? Don't we imagine sometimes that if we shortchange Jesus, if we cook the books a wee bit when it comes to our obedience, then we'll have a bit more of ourselves to spend on other things. Things that promise to make us happy. I would guess we've all tried that approach to one extent or another. Using the words of Sinclair Ferguson from earlier, I would guess we've all tried leaving a few rooms in our life locked to Jesus. Those areas are not for you to reign over Jesus. Those are me spaces. I don't obey you in those places, Jesus. Those are for a few of my favorite sins. I keep those doors locked from you. We've all tried that. Question is, did it make us joyful? Maybe it did for a few moments. Maybe even a few days or a few weeks. But before long, didn't it leave us miserable and heavy-hearted? Didn't it leave us empty and more restless than before? Jesus is saying here that real joy grows as we go farther up and farther in with him. As we move forward in willing obedience to his word. Obedience that welcomes him into every room and every cupboard of our lives. Joy comes when you and I unlock those doors 
and throw them wide open and say, how can I love you through obedience here, Jesus? How can this room of my life be used to glorify you? Remaining in Jesus, the true vine, makes us joyful and fruitful. Specifically, remaining in Jesus makes us fruitful in love. And Jesus makes it even more precise by telling us, remaining in Jesus' love results in us loving each other as he has loved us. Yes, the Bible does have things to say about love for the world out there that doesn't know Jesus. But here, Jesus prioritizes love for fellow Christians. That, Jesus says, is the fruit of remaining in his love. Look at verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is all about Jesus' love for his friends as the pattern of our love for Jesus' friends. And that explains something that might puzzle us in verse 13. We might read verse 13 and think, well... Wouldn't it be even greater love to lay down your life for your enemies? But Jesus is not talking here about loving enemies. The sense of verse 13 is, the greatest way you can love your friends is to lay down your life for them. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do in a few hours' time. When he willingly goes to the cross to lay down his life for their salvation. That was a mission only Jesus could fulfill. But in lesser ways, you and I are called to follow his example. Laying down our lives in dozens of self-sacrificial acts of service. Done for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is loving as he has loved us. Another thing that might puzzle us here is how verses 14 and 15 fit together. In verse 14, Jesus says his friends will do what he commands. We might think, well, doesn't that sound like we're servants of Jesus then? And in fact, in other places, the New Testament does call us servants of Jesus. Jesus himself calls us that in several places. So here, why does Jesus make a point of saying in verse 15, I no longer call you servants? If in other places he's happy to call us servants, what point is he making here by saying we're friends? 
Well, remember what we've learned about Jesus' relationship with his Father. Jesus obeys his Father. In verse 10, Jesus said he keeps his Father's commands. But that does not mean Jesus is deprived. It doesn't mean Jesus is missing out in any way. And so it is with us. In fact, in verse 15, Jesus says, we are accepted and loved to such a degree that Jesus brings us into his confidence. Jesus shares his business with us. He gives us the inside track on what his aims and intentions are for us. And for this world and for its future. When Jesus says at the end of verse 15, everything I learned from my Father I have made known to you, he's referring to the New Testament. It contains what Jesus made known to these disciples. The New Testament is Jesus' gift to his friends. In this book, Jesus shares his heart with his friends. And his Father's heart. So yes, you and I serve God. It will be our privilege to serve him for all of eternity. We are under his command, but we obey and serve as privileged, dearly loved friends. Friends, Jesus has chosen and appointed to go and bear fruit. Particularly, verse 17, the fruit of love for one another our brothers and sisters in Christ. And once again, that is the context for the promise at the end of verse 16. When it comes to being fruitful in our love for one another, we can ask God for whatever. And we can ask him confidently. Sometimes as Christians, we get uneasy about these commands to love one another. We might think, wouldn't Jesus be better commanding us to love the lost world out there? The New Testament answer to that question is that by loving one another and building strong bonds of love here, we are loving the world out there. Because when they see that odd bonds like us can love one another, they will have to admit there is something supernatural going on here. Now, of course, we do have to look outwards as well and go out with the good news. But what did Jesus say in chapter 13? He said, the world will know we are his disciples. The world will recognize evidence of his presence and power if we love one another. So our commitment to love one another sacrificially is not a distraction from our witness. It's the meat and potatoes of our witness. Our love for one another gives credibility to the message we proclaim to the world. Jesus is the true vine. Remaining in him results in a fruitful life. Particularly the fruit of love for one another. 
So how is your fruitfulness today? As you have a glance around the room. In what ways are you joyfully laying down your life for these brothers and sisters around you? Are you learning to bear with their strangeness? Just like they bear with your strangeness? Are you learning to appreciate their unique personalities? Are you eager to get to know them better? So you can love them more helpfully? Maybe you feel your life is quite fruitful in this. Maybe you have to admit this fruit seems a bit sparse in your life at the moment. But all of us have both the responsibility and the opportunity to grow in this. And we will grow in it as we commit ourselves to remain in Jesus by letting his word fill and direct our lives. And we commit ourselves to this knowing we are loved by the Father and the Son. Through the Holy Spirit, they are with us, making their home with us. So let's respond to God's word as we sing, first of all, of our love for Jesus, as we reaffirm that, and then as we sing about how that love spills over into love for Jesus' people.
to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>